The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and friends, it is great to be with you. Um, it is great for us to be together and to come to God's Word, and uh, we are in the midst of a sermon series uh, this winter and into the spring, looking at the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, since 1st uh, John is five chapters and 2nd and 3rd John are just single chapter books. We're spending much more time in 1st John. And that's where we've been the last number of weeks. And this morning, we're looking at 1 John 2. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible and you want one, please take that one. It is yours. Uh, we would love for you to have that. It's our gift to you. Um, please take it with you. But in 1 John, uh, we've already seen a few themes arise Themes that we're going to see in other portions of the book, themes like life and light and love, the theme of repentance, of confession, of sin. We're going to see these popping up again and again, but, but probably the most dominant theme in the book of First John is the theme of love. We heard it last week, we're going to hear it in chapter 3, we'll see it again in chapter 4, and this morning when John gives warning to the church, he does so in the context of love. And so let's go ahead and read 1 John 2, beginning in verse 12. John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help us so that we would abide in you, that we would do your will. We ask that you would take us by the hand and you would lead us on the way in which we are to go. Open our eyes and soften our hearts. Father, make our minds clear so that we would, we would receive your word and walk with you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. So how would you determine if someone is good or not? How do you make that determination if something is good or not? What would you say? I mean, we use that phrase, right, in regards to one another from time to time. I introduce one friend to another, and I introduce them. You know, this is Sarah, my friend, or this is Todd. He's a good guy. When we use those phrases, what are we thinking? What goes through our minds? When maybe we say them about someone or they're being said about us, what do we think about? What makes someone good? Well, obviously, when we're using that phrase in regards to one another, in regards to people, we're often talking about the, the virtue of that person. We're talking about what characterizes them. We're talking about 
their attributes, right? This person is a faithful friend. They're reliable. They're there for us in our time of need. They're supportive. They're helpful. We use these sorts of things to describe their goodness. The things that people do or what they believe, those are the things that give the title good. We know Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries, one of the greatest minds that the church has ever had, he took up this question of what makes someone good. And in talking about this, he said, for when there is a question as to whether a man is good, one does not ask what he believes or what he hopes, but what he loves. Do you hear what he's saying? If you want to know what makes someone good, you don't simply look at what they do, or even what they say they believe, what you look at is what they love. So what do you love? Now, we use that language all the time, don't we? We love. We love our families. We love our friends. Uh, we, We love snow. We love the warmth of a fire in the fireplace. We love tacos, right? I love I love tacos, right? You should love tacos too, by the way, um, right? We, and if when we use this language of love, when we are talking about these things, be it friends, family, jobs, careers, school, whatever it might be, when we use this language of love, often what we are describing is simply strong affection or, or strong preferences. It's another way of saying, like, I really, 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 really like tacos, right? Or whatever it might be, fill in the blank. And we shouldn't dismiss those things because those things that we love, those things that we have deep affection for, that we enjoy, those things reflect what we value, what we hold dear, where we place our hope. So what do you love? Now John, I already mentioned, has already talked about love. He talked about last week, we heard when Tobias was preaching about brotherly love. We're going to see it in chapter 3. We're going to see it in chapter 4 when John says that God is love. He talks an awful lot about love, and in this passage, he brings it up again. Look at verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the things of this world or the world. Now, what's interesting is that this is the first imperative in John's letter. It's the first command that's given. Now, there are implied imperatives throughout the letter, but this is the first of what is ten imperatives in the entire book. Now, that's actually very few, ten in five chapters. In fact, if we were to look at the number of imperatives John uses in terms of frequency per 1,000 words, 1 John has the least frequent use of imperatives of any book in the New Testament. He doesn't give a lot of commands, at least not a lot of direct commands. And when he does, this first commandment that comes after, in the midst of the second chapter, what does he say? Do not love. When he has a time to give us a commandment, he turns our attention to our affections, to our desires, to our loves. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. The contrast that John presents for us, the love for the world versus the love for the Father. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, before we go on, we need to define what John means by world, because it'd be easy for us to hear that and think John is talking about the creation, right? Like, we are to hate 
the mountains and turn our nose up at the oceans and to despise the created order, right? We, we're supposed to hate our neighbor because they're part of the creation, right? They're part of the world. No, 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 don't do that, <laughs> right? Don't do that. Uh, no, in fact, when we look at the scriptures as a whole, we see that, that John can't be saying that we are to hate the world, that when he says do not love the world, he's not talking about the creation because when the Bible speaks about the creation, how does it speak? It talks about how the creation itself is the place that reveals God's handiwork. It's, it's good. It is beautiful, right? The psalmist used this heightened language to describe the creation. Like in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Right? The songs of the Old Testament people of God were filled with celebrating God's work in the world, in his creation. And even in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, he's telling us that when Jesus returns and he consummates his kingdom, that the creation will be released from the curse. Because God cares about his creation. His creation is good. It is the avenue that displays his handiwork. And so when John speaks about the world, he isn't speaking about creation. He's speaking about what has marred the creation. He's speaking of sin. And we know this because of the way that he describes the things of the world. Look at verse 16. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. This is from the world. So let's look at those couple of phrases. Desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Now, that word for desire there, um, it, it can be translated lust. Lust. And so when we think of lust, we automatically go to sexual immorality, right? It's where we go in our minds. And lust absolutely is that, right? Sexual immorality often is, is contained because of the, the lusting of the eyes, the lusting of the flesh. But, but lust is more than simply sexual immorality. It's more than that. Lust is inordinate desires. It's longing for something that is not ours. It could be sexual immorality, but people also lust for power and for influence. Coveting is a form of lust. It's lusting after a neighbor's possessions. It's desiring something that is not ours and that God has not given to us. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, that is the things of the world. But John also says the pride of life. Now, in some of your Bibles, there may be a footnote. If you look at the footnote, it, it might show up and say that that can also mean pride of possessions. See, it's getting at where we find our value, where we find our worth. And where do we find our value and worth often in our day? Well, it's in our possessions, isn't it? It's living in the nicest house on the block. It's driving the newest car in the neighborhood. It's having the best title and all those letters after or before our names. Right? That, that's where we find our value, our worth, isn't it? And John doesn't just talk about possessions as though these things are bad, right? He says the pride of possessions. It's, the problem is, is that that's where we find our worth. 
That's where we find our value, that I am better than my neighbor because I have the best house on the block, which I don't, by the way. Or because I have the newest car, or because I have the most degrees, or because I have the most, the, the most influential title, or because I have the biggest bank, right? This is where we find pride, isn't it? This is where we find our value and our worth. And that's what John is saying. He's saying the problem is the pursuit, the vain pursuit of resources and riches. The problem is putting our security and trust in riches and possessions rather than in God. That is love of the world and love for the things of the world. And what does John tell us? Do not love the world or the things in the world. And why? Well, he gives us a few reasons why. The first is verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. Right? The things of this world, food and drink, sex and money, the things before our eyes, the pride of life, they are temporary. I mean, it's almost cliched now, right? Like, we know we can't take our possessions with us, right? The one who dies with the biggest toys still dies and has to leave his toys behind, right? We know this. We know that someone will one day live in your home, someone other than you. And another person will have your position at your company. And your money will be spent by someone other than you. The things of this world are temporary, y'all. And so John's telling us, don't set your affections on things that are momentary. Because they will pass away. They're gone. But that's not the only reason we're not to love the world. The second reason is we're not to love the world because we're not people of the world. Look at verses 12 through 14. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Now, before we go on, we need to uh, understand what John is doing here, who he's talking to. Because it'd be easy for us to look at this and go, children, young men, fathers. Well, maybe I'm not any of those. So I can just kind of tune out for the next few minutes, right? Like I'll skip over this because, you know, I'm, I'm not a young man. Well, some of you might think I'm a young man. <laughs> you know, my kids think I'm an old man, but, you know, regardless, right? Like, we might look at it, or you're a woman, and you go, I don't see him talking about young women or mothers here, so you know what? This is for you, honey. No, that's not what we're doing, okay? It's not what's going on. I think that we're supposed to take these categories metaphorically, not literally, and there's a few reasons why. The first reason is because it's poetry. Did you see how it's indented in your Bibles? That's a way of the editors of our Bibles, the translators of our Bibles, indicating to us that this is a new genre, that it's poetry. And in poetry, though poetry speaks of true things, it often speaks of true things metaphorically. So that's the first reason. The second reason is because John uses the word children throughout his epistle, throughout 1 John, to refer not to little ones, to six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, he uses children to talk of the church. In fact, we're going to see it next week, too, in our passage. He says children, and he's talking to the entire church. 
And so the way I would think that we should interpret these isn't simply like he's talking to the seven-year-old and young men are kind of like 18 and 19 and fathers or, you know, they're, well, they're fathers. No, I think what we're supposed to see is that these are different stages of Christian maturity. That John is talking to the church and to those who are young in faith and to those who are mature in faith. He's speaking to us. Not just a tiny segment of the church. And when he speaks, what does he say? He says of us, your sins are forgiven. We know the Father. We have overcome the evil one. The word of God abides in us. In other words, when John speaks to the church, what does he tell us about ourselves? How does he encourage us? He tells us we are not people of this world. We are people of another world. And y'all, that's how Jesus described us in John 17 in his high priestly prayer when he was praying not only for his disciples, but for those who would come after his disciples, praying for us. He said not that we would be removed from the world, but that we would be in the world, but not of the world. That we are to live differently from the world around us. We are to put our hope in things that in the thing that is not of this world, of God. Because we're not of the world. That's why we don't love the world. We're not of it. You see, friends, if you are trusting in Jesus this morning, power, influence, possessions, lust, inordinate desires, you are not characterized by those anymore. That is not who you are. No, you are those who have been forgiven. You are those who have been forgiven. You are those who have heard the word of God and the word of God abides in you. You are those who know the Father. That's how John describes you, who know the Father. Not know about the Father, know the Father. You understand the difference there, right? Between knowing and knowing. It's kind of like this. Um, Did you all know that a 95-mile-per-hour fastball, upon release from the pitcher's hand, takes 425 to 450 milliseconds to reach home plate. Milliseconds, not seconds. Y'all, that is wicked fast. (laughs) That is so fast, it is moving at such velocity that if that hit you in the chest, it could kill you. That is wicked fast. So now you know that, okay? You know it. 400, you know, tuck that away, pull that out, Easter lunch, you know, you can bring that out and talk all about sports physics. It'd be a really fun conversation, right? You know, useless facts that you might know for Easter, right? This, this is how you could do it. But, but you know that, but, but knowing that information, that data is very different than knowing that ball going whizzing past you, isn't it? I mean, you can know that, you can get that in your mind to some degree until you stand at the plate and you watch 95 go whizzing by. That's a different kind of knowing, isn't it? It's an experiential knowing. It's kind of like in Goodwill Hunting. You remember when Sean and Will are sitting on the park bench by the lake and Sean says to Will, you might have read about Michelangelo and looked at some of his paintings in a book but you've never stood in the Sistine Chapel and looked up at that ceiling. And you can't tell me what it smells like in that room. He says you, you could maybe read about war, 
and quote Shakespeare to me, Henry V, into the breach. But you've never seen a friend, comrade in arms, give his life in the midst of one. He says, you might know and have read about love and can quote me a sonnet, but you've never stood in complete vulnerability before another person. Y'all, there's knowing, and then there is knowing. You can give assent to a creator, to a designer. You can know that there is a God. You can accumulate data that gives you intellectual understanding. But knowing about God and knowing God are two very different things. To know him is to have relationship with him. To know him is to know his love. Not just give lip service to it, but to know it firsthand. And ultimately, y'all, that is the greatest reason why we don't love the world. Because of what we know of the Father, and what we know of the Father is his love. I mean, that's what John says, right? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so the clear implication is that to love the world means that you can't love the Father. To love sin and sinful things means you can't love God. But if you do love God, you won't love sin. And you won't love the things of this world. I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So who are you serving? Where is your allegiance? What do you love? You know, the ways in which we determine what we love and we see what we love is we look at our lives. We look at our pocketbooks and what we do with them and how we spend our time and we listen to the words that we say and we pay attention to the thoughts that we think. Because these things tell us an awful lot about what we love and about what matters most to us. You see, friends, what's in our hearts are going to be revealed. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not 30 years from now, but eventually what we love will be exposed. So what do you love? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. People of God, treasure the Father. That's what John's calling us to do in this passage. Treasure the Father. Put our love upon him. And why? Because he has loved us. That's what... Jesus says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved. It is because God loved that he sent Jesus, and it is because of God's love that we are freed from sin, and it is because of God's love that we love him and not the world. You see, friends, God's love actually woos us away from the things of the flesh and woos us away from the world and leads us to him. It draws us to himself and calls us to obey this one who has loved us. To abide in him. That's what John says in verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
that those who know the love of the Father, we don't pass away, we do not fade away, but instead we abide with him forever, dwelling in the midst of his love. He does not cast us aside or send us from his presence, but those things that have faded away, those things that have passed away, those things that are momentary, his love and our abiding with him, that is eternal. You see, friends, those who have been called out of the world into his light and who have known the Father because of the Son, who have had their sins forgiven, we remain in his love forever. Y'all, that is a glorious thing. And so don't love the world. Because the world did not die for you. Do not love the things of the world because the world, it does not forgive you. Do not love the world because it will not remain. Instead, love the Father, the one who sent his Son, who gave his life, who forgives our sin. Love him and respond to his love and abide in him forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves, but that you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus, the one who, because of his love, gave his life, gave his life so that we would have life. And so as those who dwell in that love, who have known your love and who are walking in it, we ask that you would lead us and you would teach us, turn our eyes and our affections away from this world and let us abide in you today and all of our days. Help us to do this. And we pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said together, amen.